actually two passages of Scripture. One is in... These are both from the New Testament. The text is there in the order of worship, if you'd like to just follow there. Uh, The first is in Romans 4, beginning in the second part of verse 9. That's what 9b means. And then the second part is Colossians 2, beginning in verse 11. Um, I'm going to slightly embarrass two people. First off, Emily McDonald, will you be able to email us and let us know? Sporadically? Okay, well, if you can, we hope you will, because we want to know what's going on and keep you in prayer. I just wanted to have this chat with you during worship. Um, And I also wanted to mention this. This has actually come up in a sermon or two, but it's been one of my joys uh, about once a month or so to attend a a Wednesday midday Bible study at a sister church down the road, Tabernacle Baptist Church. And uh, one of our sisters in Christ from Tabernacle Baptist is with us in worship this morning. So I just want to say welcome, and it's a joy to have you here. Romans chapter 4, beginning uh, in verse 9. Before we read this, I ask you to think about this. Um, You know, when something becomes very widespread, in other words, when something that maybe just a few people used to do becomes something that a lot of people begin to do and becomes even a national thing that people do, we ought to pull back and say, why, now why has that become so popular? Why, why are so many people doing that? You know, for instance, when I was a kid in the 70s, if you met someone who ran a marathon, you know, you, you, your jaw dropped. Like, you ran 26 miles? Are you kidding me? You felt like there were maybe 10 people in the United States that could do this. And that, now it's still a huge deal to do that. That's a massive accomplishment, but... All over the United States, lots of people in Greenville, people pay money to line up early in the morning and run 26 miles when they don't have to. And, you know, that should make us pull back and say, all right, that has obviously tapped into something deeper. I mean, that has tapped into something human. Why, why are people doing that? Now, think about tattoos, if you would. Um, I mean, I think even in my own lifetime, it seemed the case that most people did not have tattoos. And tattoos kind of had the connotation of sketchy or shady, potentially volatile. And now they're just everywhere. And, you know, as the weather's warming up and, and arms are bare and legs are bare, you just, they're, they're just tattoos everywhere. Before I was a pastor, I was a campus minister. And by the time I left, we not only had, I mean, besides students that had tattoos, uh, of course, not all of which I saw, we, we, we not only had campus ministers with tattoos, we had campus ministers' wives with tattoos. Now, when the ministers' wives are getting tattoos, we have to say, all right, you're, you're not that, you know, you're not that hard and tough if you get a tattoo now. Um, not that they're not tough, but I'm just saying. Well, but it ought to make us pull back and go, all right, now wait a second, there used to be maybe one secret tattoo parlor in this town, and now they're like, you know, 20 out in public. What, what is going on here? And what's interesting to watch is that sort of the explosion of people getting tattoos corresponds almost directly with the acceleration of technology. 
and the cultural changes that it's brought. And what you seem to see is that as, as people got, uh, as everything became faster, as everything became more connected, as you could get information about anything from anywhere at any time, as you could work anywhere, um, as you could sort of reinvent yourself on the Internet, that tattoos have become more and more and more popular. It's accelerated almost at the same time that the technology is accelerating. Now, I don't think anything ever has just one cause or there's one, you know, silver bullet. But that correspondence is interesting. And what it seems to say is this. People get tattoos for all kinds of different reasons. But if you get up over it, there seems to be a thread running through this. And the thread is that there really is a deep human desire. And it's not just American. It's all over the world. There's a deep human desire to have a mark on you that defines what is meaningful about you. That there's just a deep-seated desire besides my unique face, my unique body, my unique name, is that I want a mark on me to show why my life is meaningful and what is important to me. And what I want you to think about is, what if it were the case that God Himself put that desire in us and gave us the mark? Look with me, Romans chapter 4 beginning in the second part of verse 9, and then we'll pick up in Colossians chapter 2. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Colossians 2 verse 11. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we gather together in the name of Jesus Christ as brothers and sisters, we gather as part of a church that is bigger than we could ever comprehend. And it's even bigger than 2010. It goes back 2,000 years and will stretch ahead as long as you will. And Father, your church that loves you and loves your word has often disagreed about 
this subject, baptism. And so how we need you to teach us. Uh, We would pray that anything that is misspoken or not true to your word would fall by the wayside and not be retained. But we pray that that which is right, good, true to your word, faithful to your word, we pray that it would take root in our heart and change us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I said this at the beginning of the service, but I, I do want to plead kind of a temporary insanity when we put the bulletin together for the title of this sermon. Uh, the title that's in print is What Baptisms Mean. When this is posted on the internet, it needs to say a primer on baptism because there is no way to really plumb the depths of this subject in, you know, 30 minutes. This has been something, like I said when I prayed, that uh, godly men and women who love God, love Jesus Christ, love the Word, have disagreed about. But our hope is that you'll at least have a sense of, as a church, why we do what we do when we baptize. Why we do this, not because this is what you know the denomination told us to, but why we do this based on His Word. The first thing I want to look at is this. Baptism, like the Lord's Supper, and like circumcision and the Passover in the Old Testament, baptism is a sign. Now, I just want to look at two things about it this morning. The first is this. The sign points away from the person. The sign doesn't point to the person. The sign points away from the person even the person who receives it. Now, I want to tease this out. I want you to look in verse 9, the beginning of the passage that we have here. And it's always tough just to jump midway into a a book like Romans or Colossians and pick up midstream where an argument's being unpacked. But both of these passages are written by the Apostle Paul. They're both New Testament passages. And Paul is talking about what is the gospel? What, is, what, what, do we, what does the Bible mean by the good news? And in Romans chapter 4, what, he, he uses two men from what we call the Old Testament, what the recipients would have just called the Bible, about there's only one way you can be saved. And two of the most famous men in the Bible underscore this point. And the other one he looks at is King David. But in this part of Romans 4, he is looking at the father of the faithful, Abraham. And what does he say in verse 9? He says, We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And what Paul is referring to is this little statement in the book of Genesis. It's chapter 15, verse 6, and it's quoted a bunch of times in the New Testament. And this is what it says. Short little verse, very important. It said that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him, or it was counted to him, as righteousness. And especially the Apostle Paul, he takes that and he runs down the field with it to say this. When we stand before a holy God, who's perfect in every way, and who has perfect standards of justice, and we have broken His law in a million different ways, 
if we're going to try to dig ourselves out of a hole by obeying, there's no way to do it. You know, if you shot a million people, but you're going to be, try to be a good enough person to not have to go to jail, impossible. Justice says something's got to be done about the law breaking. And the bad news is that would be to get what we deserve. That would be justice. That would be divine wrath. And that's the bad news. But Paul says this, the good news, just like it was for David, just like it was for Abraham, the good news for us is if you will take God at His word, that somebody can be righteous for you, and somebody can undergo the wrath and the justice that you deserve, then even though you keep breaking His law, you keep making mistakes and fumbling over yourself, your sins, past, present, and future, will be forgiven, and God will count your faith, just believing, taking Him at His word, as... Righteousness. So in other words, in this part of Romans 4, Paul is saying, Abraham was saved the only way that anybody can be saved. By God's grace, through faith. And God counts that as righteousness. And then on the heels of that, Paul says this, when God did that, He gave Abraham a sign. He says it's a sign and a seal. And it's the sign of circumcision. And we read about that before the baptisms from Genesis 17. But this is a very important point, guys. When he gives Abraham the sign, what does the sign point to? Because if you're going to understand what circumcision did in the Old Testament, and if we're going to understand what baptism does in the New Testament era, you need to get this point. What did the sign point to? Signs point to something else. You know, if you see Coca-Cola in beautiful old-fashioned script, or you just see capital letters Coke in bold Helvetica, what is it pointing to? It is pointing to this wonderful brown carbonated drink that we love, right? It's not pointing to itself. It's pointing you away. God gives Abraham a sign. What's it pointing to? Look in verse 11 says that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of what? Is it a sign and a seal of his faith? What does the text say? He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In other words... What the sign was signifying, what it was pointing to, was not the faith that Abraham had. It's pointing to the righteousness that God secured for him, offered to him, gave to him, and that he possessed through faith. It's a sign of the righteousness. And it's the righteousness and the cleaning that he needs. Now, in the Old Testament era, that sign by which that was done was circumcision. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be as careful as I can not to belabor any awkward aspects of circumcision this morning, okay? But we do need to recognize what it is. It's a visible, physical, very physical sign. But what's the real meaning? Listen to this. This is from Deuteronomy 10. 
Old Testament passage. And listen to how this talks about God's heart and then the people's heart. Deuteronomy 10, starting in verse 14, it says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set His heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Now, there are several passages like that in the Old Testament. But what is that telling us? That when this physical act was done to a little eight-day-old Israelite boy, it is a sign on that boy, but where is it pointing? It's pointing to something bigger than that boy and something else about that boy. It's saying that boy's real problem is everybody's real problem. That we show up with a heart that is not naturally right. And the image, the metaphor that God uses is, again, not to belabor the awkward, but your heart has an unclean foreskin that resists me that rebels against me. And what you need is a cleaning in which that is cut away and your heart is made right. And so that you will see the reality of that, this sign will be placed on all the Israelite males. Now, if you grew up Gentile and you became an Israelite as an adult and you were a man, you would undergo that sign. But the children of those who were already Israelites... Those families placed that sign on the eight-day-old Israelite boys, pointing to what God gave to those who believed. It says it's a sign, and then it also says it's what? It's a seal. What does a seal do? Not a seal, I mean a, a legal seal. If you go, if you take something to the notary public, and the notary public affirms that this document is what it's supposed to be, and they seal it. What is that saying in the eyes of the law? This confirms, you know, this ratifies that this is true and binding. As all these Israelite boys underwent this over all these generations, God says, that's a seal. What's it it sealing? It's sealing that God is saying, I know you. I know you. And if if this covenant between me and you is going to be contingent on your level of faithfulness, there's just going to be wreckage. And boy, did the history of Israel bear that out. And boy, does the history of the church bear that out. If this is contingent on your ability to be faithful to me, there will be wreckage. But this, literally, on your male body, is a seal. I'm sealing the deal that to whatever degree... You are not faithful. I am faithful. I am sealing that I have a people and that you are part of that people and I will never, ever leave my people. If you will take me at my word, I will cleanse you. You have my word on it. And there's a seal on you for the rest of your life to remember that. Now, again, oh, that we had more time. But a couple of things to think about. 
as is the case with circumcision in the Old Testament, and we're thinking about baptism in the New, the New Testament era, if it primarily pointed to a decision on a person's part to believe, in other words, if what it was really about was my response to God, my decision, it would, it would be completely inappropriate to do what we did this morning. Because those little boys, precious as they are, smart as they are, they are not old enough to understand the gospel and believe it in any kind of systematic way. Nor could little eight-day-old Israelite boys understand who Yahweh was and what the covenant was and why they needed forgiveness of sins. But if circumcision in the old and if baptism in the new point to the same reality... What my heart needs. My heart needs circumcising. My heart needs washing. If that's what it's pointing to, not my decision, but what God offers in His faithfulness to His people, then there are two kinds of people that should undergo this sign. The first are grown-ups who've never undergone this sign, who weren't believers, who become believers. And listen, I want to tell you, I want more adult baptisms. If for no other reason that, you know what, I love sprinkling. It's biblical to sprinkle. Baptisms are called sprinklings. Uh, Sprinklings are called baptisms in the book of Hebrews. But I love pouring. We've only gotten to do that a couple of times. And I think I'm going to start pouring even more than I have up till now. And, And I would even nudge you and exhort you. The only way that's going to happen is going to be as you, in your relationships with those who have never undergone that sign, that you care about. It's not so much that we want to under, them to undergo the act, we want them to receive the reality that the act points to. We want them to, to have the blessing that the act signifies. If that's what you want, I would say, hey, why don't you start bringing someone who's never been baptized? And we will see more of them. The first is adults. But the second, like circumcision, are the children of those who believe. Who take God at His word, what He said to Abraham. Who take God at His word, what He said to the the Apostle Peter. That these promises aren't just for you as individuals. But He's making a people. And that these promises are not just for you, but for your children and for all those who will come. And when they undergo this, either as adults or as children, they visibly, publicly are admitted into a community of people that God says, I will never leave you. You will be unfaithful to me, but I will never be unfaithful to you. When we baptized those boys a few minutes ago, it did not make them go to heaven. It did admit them into the church, and there is no institution like the church. Christ's own bride. And until they or we show ourselves to reject the covenant, we are part of a community in which God makes a covenant with us. And the sign is baptism. 
The second thing I want to say is this, is just application, is the reason that we don't rebaptize when someone who has been baptized becomes a Christian later in life is because it doesn't point to our decision. I mean, in my own experience, I was baptized as a baby boy in Clinton, Mississippi. And we do pronounce the T. Okay, it's not Clinton, it's Clinton, Mississippi. I was baptized. I have no recollection of it. I was as young as those boys a few minutes ago. And when I became a Christian in 10th grade, this was a question I asked. Do I need to be rebaptized? Because, man, now I believe this stuff. Now the words of the Bible are flying off the page at me. Do I need to undergo this? Because now it would have real meaning to me. And somebody explained to me, look, what happened to you in 10th grade is what was depicted. When that sign was placed on you when you were an infant, and when your parents brought you and said, God is our God, and He's going to be a God to this little boy, it happened. You don't have to replicate it. That's why we don't do that. All right? The sign points away from the person. The second thing is this, briefly. The sign points to what God's people have in Christ. The sign points to what God's people have in Christ. Colossians 2. Did you catch this? The second passage here. Paul says, In Him, in Jesus Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now that's a weird thing to say because the people he's writing to are Gentiles. And generally, Gentiles were not circumcised. That's why Jewish culture was different. At least one of the manifestations of it. So why in the world would Paul write to a Gentile church and say, you know what, I already know something about you. You've been circumcised. Why would he say that? But did you catch that he was very careful to qualify what he meant? He says in verse 11, you've been circumcised but it was a circumcision done, how? Without hands. And then he says this, it's a circumcision that was done by Christ. What does he mean? And the little silver bullet phrase that he uses that I want you to see is at the beginning of verse 11, he says, "...in Him." That is one of the Apostle Paul's absolute favorite phrases in the world. In Him. In Christ. In Jesus Christ. Whenever you see him saying that, this is what he's saying. When a man or woman believes in Jesus, you're not just believing in data and saying, yep, that's the best data about religion I ever bumped into me. Sign me up with that data. Or he's my religious leader and and I'm following him. He said, no, no, no. When God saves you, this is a mystery. He not only causes you to see Jesus, believe in Jesus, follow Jesus. He unites you to Jesus. You're in Him. One of the metaphors he uses is that in this mysterious way that a husband and a wife are still two people... But in God's sight, in a very real way that we can't explain, they become one 
flesh. They become one entity. That that is analogous to what happens between believers and Jesus. We are in Him. And what Paul loves to talk about, and he says this in verse 12, what happened to Him, you have. That from our vantage point, when He was buried 2,000 years ago, you were buried. And we can't even completely understand what that means. But Paul draws out things like, look, you are... And, and I've, when I teach the women's Bible study, this has come up every week, I think. The Christian is not a rehabilitated old you. You're not a forgiven, rehabilitated old you. The Christian is a new creature in Christ. The Christian is a new you. And that in Christ, the old you died. And the you that you are now, as a Christian, you're dead to sin. And you've been raised to new life. He was raised, you were raised. We tend to think of resurrection as all something that's going to happen in the future. The Apostle Paul would say, you have already been raised. In Christ. And Paul says, and you have that. In Him. And visibly we've seen that because you have been baptized. This sign points to what God's people have in Christ. A couple of things. The, obvious, the first obvious one is we have washing. You know, what's the real circumcision we need? It's the heart circumcision. What's the real washing we need? Is it a sprinkling? Is it a pouring over our body? Is it even an immersion in water? The real washing we need is this sneaky, sneaky, deceitful, sinister heart that can look like it's good when actually it is completely bent in on itself. That's where the real washing is needed. In Christ, you have that. And this may seem like absolute elementary school stuff to some of you who have grown up in the church. But we can't say it enough. Everybody here shows up dirty. And in Jesus, you can be washed. And it doesn't matter the depths of what you have done or will do. You can have solicited prostitutes... You can have prostituted yourself. You can have been a murderer. You can defraud people of money. You can hate. If you are washed by Jesus, He washes it all away. If you are in Him. But the other thing is this. As we said, if you're in Christ, the old you is gone. And you are the new you. Now, I'm going to go where angels fear to tread here. But I can aim it back on myself. One disadvantage, and to the Adams and the Van der Waters and the Bridges, do not take this personally. But visibly, one disadvantage to how we tend to do infant baptisms is we bring them 
in sort of like beautiful white clothes. And trust me, no one can like out white and out frilly the Haybigs in what they brought their children in. They uh, brought their children in when our children were baptized. That's fine. All the Bible commands is a washing with water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by the church. But one disadvantage is they come looking clean and they leave the same way. Now again, this is not commanded, but just for contrast, in the ancient church, men and women would strip down to all but what they had to keep on to be at all decent. And in actual documented cases, they would sometimes strip completely down publicly. And they were baptized, and then, right on the heels of that, they were clothed in white. And now, I'm not pushing to reinstate this at Downtown Press, but <laughs> what, what that would drive home would be, here I am, and it's very awkward, like it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be awkward when you stand up and say, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But you stand there naked. You stand there as helpless and as passive as an infant. And you're washed. And then you're clothed in white. And it's very obvious you are now different. And again, maybe this sounds terribly basic, but I, want to say, I just want to say it again. If you are in Christ... And if the sign of baptism has been placed on you, that sign signifies and seals that the old you is gone. And there is this thing called the flesh. It's the residue. It's old habits. It's old patterns. It's old ways that still haunt us. And it will nip at your heels till you die. But those patterns and that nipping is not you. The new you is who you are in Christ. You have been raised. That is signified when we do baptisms. Um, A couple of things here, lastly. If you're a Christian, how do you think about yourself? I mean, what identifies you? If you're a child in this room... If you're younger than high school especially, I want to say something to you. Y'all listening? If you're in school and there are boys and girls that say something about you that's unkind, and when they say it, it makes you feel bad all day, and you feel like what they said is who I am, Do you know what God is saying to you? He's saying that if you have been baptized, if that sign has been placed on you, and maybe you need to ask your parents, was that sign placed on me? Okay, it was. If that sign has been placed on you, you need to understand that the God who made you and the God who made those boys and girls who may have said something they shouldn't have said, that when He looks on you, He says, that one belongs to me and that's who you are. And it's hard to hang on to that when your feelings are hurt. When someone's unkind to you, it feels like what they said makes it true. 
Nothing's more true than what God says. Nothing's more true than what God says. And grown-ups, it's the same for you. That it doesn't matter what kind of house you live in. It doesn't matter what your income is. It doesn't matter how your 401k is doing. It doesn't matter what you weigh. You are who God says. And if you are in Christ and have the sign of that on you, you are His clean, beloved people whom He marries. If you're not a Christian this morning, I would say this to you without reservation. I want you to be baptized. I really do. But not until you believe in what the sign signifies. And you are not in a room of good people. I'll tell you that. And you're not listening to a good pastor. I'll tell you that. But you're in a room of people that all need washing. We need it. But God is saying to you, you need it too. And it is offered to you a righteousness that someone did for you that He offers to you that will make your heart clean. I urge you to believe that. And if you do, and if you've never received that sign, please come find me. That we might baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You have died, You've been buried, You've risen again. In You, Your people have died and been buried and raised to new life. For we who bear this sign on our flesh, this washing with water in Your name, We pray that that would make us remember that You will never leave us. Your wedding band is upon us. That You love us. You're committed to us. You wash our sins away. Lord, if any here have not undergone this heart washing by Jesus, enable them to look and believe and have their hearts made clean. And may we rejoice together to see their baptism. We ask this in His name. Amen.